action. I think so, yeah. yeah. Heard of him, yeah. Yeah, you should check him out. He's got weird hours, but he's a nice guy and he's got, he's got a lot of talent. The problem is, is he's only open a couple days a week and like if he gets busy in there, then he's sitting with the staff that are helping him. There's another place you guys might consider looking at. It's a pawn shop in here called Cash for All Pawn. I've seen it, but I've never really I've actually bought a at number it. of firearms from those guys. Real nice folks. Josh, Josh is the owner, and then there's uh, Dale. Works yeah. in there and a lady named uh, Gwendolyn. Very nice folks. And uh, in fact, I've got a couple of guns on layaway with them right now. So they, they do have a layaway program. And uh, yeah, I bought, uh, bought an HMR 17 uh, bolt action with a squirrel and a small varmint. And I got a uh, Ruger 1022 carbine on, on layaway. I bought a couple of them. Pistols also. Yeah. Connor's not 18 yet. No. He, he really wants one, but I'm like, no. He's, we're not going to do it when he's old enough, When he's old enough, it's, yeah. he should buy it directly, and that way, all the responsibility yeah. and yep. culpability. And that. That's how I got my first one. Yeah. Is my mom bought it and then transferred it. But honestly, I don't think we can buy a handgun until you're 21.
Okay, hi. Glad to see you could make it. Hmm? Glad to see you're here. I'm glad to be here. Hmm. Looks like we're sparsely populated again. Where is everybody? They're either in route or they're not. Very true.
Good morning. Glad to see all of you here. A couple of announcements. Our communion service is uh, going to be today following a 10-minute break after morning worship. And there will be no service this evening. And we will resume schooling next Sunday, tentatively, weather permitting, and the world doesn't end. If you watched uh, the proceedings this weekend with the nomination and voting of the Speaker of the House, I kind of like it to an unsupervised daycare. It was just uh, a little discouraging to see what was going on, but fascinating nonetheless. Do we have any updates on our members that are missing in action? See, Terry's not here, so she can't give it an update on Tom. Ken, you guys are doing okay? Della's uh, okay? Amen, brother. Della's not in too much pain, or? She's fighting the best. Keep her in our prayers for that. Okay. If there is no other messages or uh, prayer requests or word of praise, then our scripture for meditation this morning is taken from the book of Psalm, chapter 23. That'll be page 862 in your pew Bibles.
in our prayer life, let's not forget uh, at the bottom of our page here to pray for Jared with his procedure coming up for his catheterization. Be on the 23rd of January. Uh, let's continue to, to go to the Lord with that. That all goes well. Do stand with us as we begin our service in prayer. Dale, may I prevail on you to lead us, please. Will you take your red hymnal this morning and turn to number 378? <coughs> 378 in the red.
203-203 in the brown. <coughs>
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 15, <clears throat> verses 8 through 10, page 1623 in your pew Bible. When you come to that, please stand with us. <clears throat> Luke 15, verses 8 through 10. <clears throat> or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Father in heaven, may you add your blessing to this scripture reading that it finds the hearts of the lost and opens them up and draws them to you. In the name of Christ we ask. Amen. We take your brown hymnal again and turn to number 325. <clears throat> 325 in the brown.
Our scripture's text this morning is Luke chapter 15, verses 8 and following. The last Lord's Day, we studied the parable of the barren fig tree. This parable was prompted by two news stories of Jesus' day, the first of which the people brought to Jesus' attention. Galileans in the midst of worshiping God in the temple were cut down by Pilate's soldiers. No reason given for that. It just happened. Second news item, Jesus related to the people the watchtower of Siloam collapsed unexpectedly on 18 people, killing them all. And Jesus was quick to point out to the crowd that neither of these things had occurred because the victims were somehow more wicked than they. No, they too were sinners in need of repentance, lest they perish. That was Jesus' that brought us to the study of the fig tree a vineyard owner planted a fig tree in the midst of his vineyard and every year the tree reached maturity Uh, he, he would hike out to pick figs but there was never any year in which there were figs well after three years of no success he ordered his servants to cut the tree down because it was occupying valuable land and it was providing no fruit. The servants proposed a one-year moratorium on the fate of the tree, in which time he promised to cultivate it and fertilize it. And after one year, the tree, the tree's fate would be decided. We've brought out the lesson that repentance worthy of the name, must produce fruit in keeping with repentance, Matthew 3, verse 8. And the fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of repentance. God is not fooled by our ability to mimic the Christian life. He's not interested in a show of life, but rather in a fruitful life, the fruit of the Spirit. There is an urgency in our time to produce fruit for God. Grace is extended for one more year, but even God's patience eventually runs out. I say that to people who are saying, well, you know, when I get older, I'll think about God and I'll get right with God. Well, you may not have another year. You may not have another day. You may not have another month. So the warning goes out to the unfruitful to repent today and not tomorrow. Scripture says today is the day of salvation. Well, today's study brings us to another of these parables, which is found only in the Gospel of Luke. This is the parable of the lost coin. As we come, let's ask for the Lord's enablement. Our Father, we thank you for these accounts in the Gospel of Luke. The other authors of the Gospels didn't include them, but Luke did. 
And we're thankful for that. It expands and embellishes the truth of your word and shows in real and practical ways how vast the gospel is, how pointed, and how important for us to pursue its truth. Bless our time together today. Thank you for those that could be here and for those that are locked at home and sick with problems. We pray that you'll embolden them and bless them through the study of your word over the internet. We'll praise you for what you will do in Christ's name. Amen. This entire chapter, and I'm referring to Luke chapter 15, deals with lost things. Lost things. Verses 1 through 7, the lost sheep. One in a hundred that wandered off from the fold and the good shepherd left the 99 and went to fetch and to find that one that was lost. We considered this parable from Matthew 18, verse 12 and following. Then in our text for today, verses 8 through 10, the story of the lost coin. And finally, verse 11 and following, the parable of the lost son, more commonly known to us as the story of the prodigal son. Now note, please, that all of these stories seem to flow from one event. Verse 1, a gathering of people who came to hear Jesus teach. And this crowd was divided in two distinct groups. Tax gatherers and sinners was one group. Let's call it group 1. And then group 2 Pharisees and teachers of the law, verse 2. So, these two groups were those that Jesus was addressing. May I say that these two groups still exist today? By which I mean that in every society, one will find those who are sinners and know it, and those who are sinners and don't know it. There will be people who are very conscious of their spiritual needs and those who are self-righteous and are actually asleep concerning their spiritual needs. The first group is generally receptive to the gospel and the second group is not. This mixed bag comprised the group which Jesus sought to teach concerning Matters of eternity. Each parable in this chapter flows logically into the next. Verse 3, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Verse 8, or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. So you see this instruction was given all at one time 
There's no break for discussion of the storyline. Each story stands on its own as to its meaning, but each story is also a piece of the larger puzzle so that the whole is more than the summation of the parts. Every one of these stories deals with some aspect of God's relationship to sinners in the salvation experience. The story of the lost sheep demonstrates the great lengths to which God will go to find a sinner who has wandered off, even if he has to leave the 99 self-righteous to fend for themselves. Verse 7. Parable of the lost coin demonstrates the joy in heaven over even one sinner who repents of his sin. Verse 10. The parable of the lost son, which we will get to in time, demonstrates the degree of sin to which men can go in their rebellion against God and the degree of God's forgiveness to embrace them and receive them to himself when they repent. So we've got God seeking sinners, God rejoicing over repentant sinners, and thirdly, God forgiving contrite sinners. These are the lessons of the trilogy of stories that we find here. And they paint a picture of God from the lips of Christ, which ought to bring hope, and consolation to any hurting sinner that's here this morning. They show us in no uncertain terms that our fear of God's rejection of us because of our sin is unfounded. Sinners are the people for whom Christ died, and they are the people he seeks for his heavenly kingdom so if they will repent and, re, and, and admit to God's evaluation, it's not a matter of rejection, it's a matter of inclusion. You're the very person that God is seeking to bring into his kingdom. Now that brings us to the story of the lost coin, verse 8 and following. A woman had ten silver coins. These were Greek coins, drachmas. That's equivalent to the Roman denarii, which we have seen in the parable of the vineyard owner, Matthew chapter 20, and the parable of the stewards, Matthew 25. We're simply dealing here with a multicultural society in which both Greek and Roman coinage was circulated. Like the Roman denarii, the Greek drachma was worth a full day's wages. I was excited. I watched Pawn Shop. I like to see what people bring in to pawn. And uh, I was watching that one day, and here comes this man, and he's going to try to sell to the pawn shop believe it or not, a Roman denarii from the age of Augustus Caesar. And they had it pictured there, and on the, on the gold coin was a replica of Caesar himself 
And I got excited because I knew the history of that in relationship uh, to the Christian gospel. Our Christian people had to live in a Roman society and they carried those coins about and paid for their produce, their taxes and everything else using Rome's coinage. Well, this woman had 10 such coins, but she lost one. And to see what that would mean to you, multiply the hours a, a, a day of work would be for you and ask yourself, hmm, if I'm making $50 a day or $75 a day or $100 a day, would I be upset if I lost that money? If I lose a quarter, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm upset, <laughs> let alone $100 or whatever. I dare say most of us would be upset to lose a day's wages. What I like to do if I'm trying to assess the value of a certain amount of money is to calculate its buying power. When I'm dealing with young couples in counseling who are having financial trouble and they're trying, I'm trying to get them to see how much money they are squandering, I use this method. They will say, Pastor, we don't eat out much. We don't do anything unusual. Hmm, okay. So I say, well, how many pizzas do you buy in a week? And they will say, well, two. Okay. Two a week, that's 20 bucks. That's $80 a month. How many videos do you buy? Well, we only buy the latest released video that comes out. And that's usually a monthly one-time thing. How much is that? That's 20 bucks. How many CDs do you buy? One. Okay, that's... $20, 15 maybe. What's cable TV costing you? $40 a month. Okay. I'm adding this all up. That comes to $135 a month. In buying power, that's a used car payment. Or if they already have a car, it's a new set of shocks. It's two new tires. It's four tanks of gas. Maybe a water pump repair. 
$155 is two weeks of groceries for a young couple. It's the electric bill or it's the heat bill. It could be a new sports coat for hubby, a new dress for the wife. When you begin to look at money in terms of its buying power instead of merely its dollar amount, you can readily see that just a little sacrifice in the pleasure department can bring a whole lot more pleasure from financial security and the ability to pay your bills without any worry. I don't know what the buying power of this woman's one silver drachma coin was, but I suspect that her money went a lot further in her day than ours goes in our day. I'm not convinced that the inflationary many dollars which we take home is the equivalent to the fewer real dollars that our great-grandparents took home. At any rate, we may enter into this woman's assessment of her loss by her conduct. Her conduct once she discovered that the coin was missing. She did three things. Number one, she lit a lamp. Number two, she swept the house with a broom. And number three, she searched carefully the whole time (coughs) that she was sweeping. Homes in Palestine usually had very small windows or none at all. So lamps were used in the daytime as well as night, which I suppose is what we do in our homes on a gloomy or rainy day. The floor of such modest homes was made out of dirt. And yes, for any of you who have not lived in a house with a dirt floor, you do sweep them just like you would any floor surface. The dirt is so compacted, it is so hard, that it forms a semi-shiny surface capable of being swept with a broom. You sound, Pastor, like you have some experience about that. You guess right. I can just see this woman positioning her lamp so it shined on one section of the floor and then trying not to block the light by her own shadow, she would sweep and search, she would sweep and search again, inch by inch, until she covered the whole floor. And guess what? Her industry paid off. There it was. In the corner of the room, down behind the desk, that little silver coin which she had lost. And immediately she called her friends and neighbors together and said, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. Okay, but is this story about lost money and rejoicing over it when it's found? Is it about the sense of community which this Jewish society of Jesus' day seemed to have? Is it about 
diligent searching and hard work paying off. Well, undoubtedly, all of this is here to some degree, to some degree. But Jesus' summation shows us that he, from his van standpoint, hasn't been talking about lost coins at all. He has been talking about lost sinners. Verse 10. In the same way I tell you that there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. By looking at the original statement of the woman to her neighbor, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. Comparing it with Jesus' statement, There is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. We learn that the counterpart of coin is sinner. The counterpoint of found is repents. Which means that Jesus is saying that a sinner is lost so long as he remains in love with his sin and he's found when he repents of his sin and renounces it. Repentance is essential to being found by God. If there's no repentance, the sinner is still lost. I hope you get that. Let me say it again. Repentance is essential to salvation. If there's no repentance, you're still lost. It's just as surely as the silver coin remained lost until the dirt was swept away and revealed its identity. But there's something more here in terms of the parallels between these two statements. The woman says, Rejoice with me, I have found. And Jesus says, There is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In the presence of the angels of God, yes, but okay, who's doing the rejoicing? Well, it is someone who is the counterpart of the woman who speaks in the first person singular, me, I. So it is God, brethren, who rejoices in the presence of the angels and the angels like this woman's neighbors and friends join him in the joy. The Greek text makes it even plainer. It says in the Greek text, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner repenting. This story is about the rejoicing which God does when sinners who were lost are found when the incorrigible turn from their evil ways and repent. Do you know this about God? Do you know that God is one who delights in having sinners turn from their evil ways 
and come to know his saving grace. This is not an isolated teaching of the Bible. Consider Isaiah 61. The prophet says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and arrayed me in the robe of righteousness. So Isaiah is confessing that God has granted the people and himself salvation, a salvation which had lifted them out of their spiritual poverty and their brokenheartedness, their slavery to sin, and the ignorance of a darkened heart. And what is God's reaction to this turn of events? Chapter 62, the very next chapter, 62, verse 4 and 5 of Isaiah. The Lord will take delight in you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. God is delighted when people come to know him. The prophecy of Jeremiah has some very terrible pronouncements of judgment on Israel for its rebellion against God, not the least of which is the promise that Israel will be taken into captivity and scattered among the nations. But there's also this glorious promise, God speaking. I will surely... Gather them from all those lands where I banish them in my furious anger and great wrath. I will bring them back. Wow. The parable of the lost sheep, right? Which we study. God seeking them out. The one that was lost in the wilderness. To bring him back. Let's read on. I will give them singleness of heart and action. So that they will always fear me. For their own good. And the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. What a statement. I will never stop doing good to them. And I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. That's Jeremiah 32, verse 37 and following. It agrees with the parable of rejoicing over the lost coin that we're studying this morning that is found. God is so desirous of having lost sinners found that he grants them the repentance which he himself requires for reconciliation. Ezekiel 18 verse 23 asks the question, and God is speaking, Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked? asks God. 
Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their way and live? And then verse 36, or verse 32, same chapter, Ezekiel 18, dispels all doubt as to how we are to answer these questions. Because God answers them for us. He says, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. That's God's position. Zephaniah, a little book we don't often turn to. Zephaniah 3 verse 18 assures the inhabitants of Jerusalem, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Do you ever think of that about God? That he rejoices over us with singing? Paul writes it this way in Romans 8, 32 and following. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also uh, along with him give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Implied answer, no one. No one. Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, that is his promise to return, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God's delay is going to result in the salvation of some more sinners. And we ought to be okay with that. So what is this? Well, it's Old Testament and New Testament. It's major prophets and minor prophets. It's Jesus' parables or Paul's epistles. They all tell of how God is desirous of lost sinners to repent and come to him. And of his rejoicing whenever they do. Now, how many... repentant sinners does it take for God to call the angels together for a celebration verse 10 there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents you get that One repentant sinner is as much a cause for God to rejoice as a hundred. If a Christian psychologist were to interpret this truth, he might say something stupid like this. See how much you as an individual are worth to God? 
Your conversion is enough to set heaven ringing with joy. Is that what Jesus is saying? I look at the same text and I think it says this. See how worthy is our God who will leave the 99 righteous and search until he finds the one who is lost, who will set aside nine silver coins and sweep and search until the set is complete again by finding the missing coin. Jesus put it this way, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I will lose none of all that he has given me. John 6, verse 39. That's what the gospel says. Sorry, Arminian brethren. The emphasis of the gospel is not on you and how wonderful you are, so much so that God came to rescue you. The gospel is you're so wicked you couldn't save yourself and God sent his son and because of the blood of his son he rescues those whom he chooses. The parable of the lost coin is not a story on the worth of sinners which drives God to seek them. It is a story of worthlessness of our God who has fixed the number of the redeemed and has promised his son that he would see his offspring and prosper his will in his hands. Isaiah 53, verse 10. And God keeps his promise. Not one for whom Christ died will be lost. Not one. God will find him. God will find her. And when he does, he will rejoice over the fact that another sinner has come to eternal life by his grace and mercy. So, as the shepherd left the 99 sheep and went out into the wilderness in search for the one which was lost, and as the woman swept and searched and then swept and searched some more for the lost coin, there is a relentlessness in God's action in this business of saving souls. And it isn't that God doesn't give up easily, but rather that God doesn't give up. Period. He doesn't quit until all 100 sheep are safe within the fold until the entire set of 10 coins is complete. What then are the lessons we should take to heart? Well, number one, if God seeks sinners whom he knows he has ordained to eternal life, shouldn't we seek sinners for Christ with the full assurance that our efforts will not go unrewarded? I want you to follow the logic here. God has ordained to eternal life all those who will populate his kingdom. He has fixed a number, and every number has a name that is written in the Lamb's book of life, from the creation of the world. Revelation 17 verse 8 says that. 
Did you know that verse was in the Bible? Your name was written in the Lamb's book of life before the creation of the world. That means before Adam, before Eve, you were already written in God's book of life. Kind of should make us shake our heads to think that, well, we must be pretty special and we had to choose God and this is a logical conclusion is it not from the standpoint of the omniscience of God how could God not know the number of his elect people God knows everything there is to know about every subject, including those who will comprise his kingdom. Beyond the logic, however, is the sure word of God which tells us how God knows the people who will believe in him. Ephesians 1, verse 4 and following says, God chose us in him before the creation of the world. What? God chose us in him before the creation of the world. That's why the names of the saints are written in the Lamb's book of life at that time. To be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure of his will. This is the first reason explaining how God knows the people who will believe in him. He knows them because he chose them. Second, the second reason God knows those who will be his people is because he's the one who draws these people to Christ. Goes hand in hand. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. John 6, verse 37. But then he also adds, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6, verse 44, verse 65. Unless the Father has enabled him to come. Wow. Well, what does it take to enable sinners? The Bible says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18. You understand what's being said? The reason that your friend, your relative, your loved one doesn't come to Christ when you witness to them, okay, is because they consider what you say to be foolishness. 
The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's a sign of why they're perishing. 1 Corinthians 1.18 Oh, it's more involved than that. We read on. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and, here it is, he cannot understand them. Chapter 2, verse 14 of John. Wow. Do you ever do this sometime? I've done it. You're witnessing me somebody. And you could read, you could open your Bible to John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Hand the Bible to the person you're witnessing to. Point out that verse. Ask them to read it. Okay, they read it. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world. Now tell me what it means. Seems pretty clear, doesn't it? You will get the most fanciful, weird, outer space, sky Lucas coming from space explanation of that verse that you have ever heard. To you, it's so obvious, it's so clear, it's so simple. But the message of the cross is foolish to those that are perishing. They don't get it. And without the Spirit, they don't accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. They're just foolish. And they cannot, the Scripture says, cannot understand them. You will be blue in the face trying to explain it. Oh, okay, so what does God do to enable such a person to believe in him when the message of the cross is foolishness to him and he can't understand it anyway? Ephesians 2, verse 4. Because of his great love for us, God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. So thus sinners are given a new disposition towards the things of God. He goes on, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 and 18. You say, well, don't people have to believe in the gospel to be saved? Yes. Don't they have to turn away from their sin and trust in Jesus as their Savior? Yes. Of course they do. What does the Bible say about that? When Paul preached the gospel in the synagogue of Antioch, the Jews opposed his message because of their jealousy over the large crowds who had assembled to hear Paul. But the Gentiles present on the same occasion, believed and were converted. And how is it that they believed? 
Luke tells us in Acts 13, verse 48, all who were appointed for eternal life believed. There it is. The same is said of repentance in Acts eleven eighteen, when Peter was called to explain his actions in taking the gospel to the household of a Roman centurion. Boy, they didn't like that. And Peter explained that as he preached the gospel to Cornelius' family, the Holy Spirit of God fell upon them as it had occurred to the disciples on the day of Pentecost. And the reaction of the Jerusalem church was this. Let me read it. When they heard this... They had no further objection. And they praised God, saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles the repentance unto life. Yeah. Here's the third reason how God knows those who will believe in him. It is God that grants them the repentance to turn from their sin and the faith to embrace Christ. These are spiritual realities that people need to come to Christ. But they don't have it in and of themselves. By nature, they hate God. So I've said all that to say this. God knows those who are his people and those who will become his people. He knows this because he has chosen these people before the creation of the world and recorded them in the book of life. Daniel talks about it in chapter 12 of the book of Daniel. Secondly, he actively draws these sinners to Christ and enables them to respond by giving them a new disposition, John 6, verse 44. Thirdly, as to response to the gospel, he grants them both the repentance and the faith that brings salvation. Ephesians 2. And this number of the redeemed is never in jeopardy of diminishing. Jesus put it this way. This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up in the last day. All of this being true and with nothing intended to take away from it, I want you to see from the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin that God nonetheless is relentlessly involved in the pursuit of people. The 99 sheep are left and the shepherd goes in search for that one that wandered off. The nine coins, though a tidy sum in their own right, are put in a bag and the whole house is illuminated, swept, searched, Swept, searched again until that lost coin is found. I do not see fatalism here in the gospel that Jesus preached. There's no idea that the elect of God will just come 
walking into the kingdom of Christ like the animals walked into Noah's ark. No, there's pursuit by God. The Bible has it. Lydia along the shorelines, the Ethiopian eunuch, Saul of Tarsus, Mary Magdalene, on and on. Should we not also be sweeping our house, our family household, to find the lost coins? Is it enough that 99 sheep have made it safely into the fold of God's kingdom? Well, it's not enough for God. He'll not quit until the last one of his people is found and safe in Christ. Have we quit? Have we ever seen our role in the pursuit? The second lesson here is notice how God rejoices over just one sinner who comes to love him. Verse 7, verse 10. (laughs) It doesn't take 12 conversions to please God or 100 conversions or 1,000. We don't need a Billy Graham crusade for God to get excited. It only takes one sinner. We get all caught up in the numbers games and worry that the labor of our work nets such small returns. Don't do that. God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. God rejoices over one repentant sinner, so you should rejoice over one repentant sinner. And don't keep comparing the work at Thornville with the work of the megachurches. It's better to have one who repents than 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Verse 7. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Verse 2. And even if other churches have genuine success, genuine success, it only means that God has granted the people of those ministries the repentance that leads to life. Our task is to be faithful to the gospel in our search for the lost and to rejoice over the one sinner who genuinely repents and comes to saving faith. If you keep looking for big numbers, you set your heart in a different direction than God's. God knows that what? Broad is the road that leads to destruction and many there are who are on it. He also knows that few find the narrow road that leads to life, but he rejoices over the few and does not regret the many who have chosen to flee from him. How precious is the salvation of our God. 
He's fully pleased with what he does and what we do by faith in giving forth the gospel and by praying and living out the gospel before our friends and neighbors and before our family. Yeah, we want our kids saved and we want our grandchildren saved. I want that. We've got to live the gospel as well as teach it. God will give us his grace. Our Lord, thank you for your truth today. One lost coin, little coin, drachma, little Roman coin. Yet this person, represented by God himself, searched and searched until that one coin was found and brought into the money bag again, part of the household of God. Help us to see that. We are not in competition with the churches of the world and their multi-schemes to bring crowds of people in and the easy believism which is taught. Just come to Jesus. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life without any understanding of who Jesus is or what he has done or what, has he, what he had to do in order to save sinners. Lord, help us to love the gospel and to declare it and to believe that if it's one or 50 or one in a hundred, the numbers game is not important. The important thing is to be obedient to your word and giving forth the gospel so that whoever comes in the end is genuinely brought to faith in Christ begins to live out the gospel. We thank you for this. In Christ's holy name, amen. Our closing hymn, excuse me, is 464 in Trinity. Let's stand together and sing.
We'll take a 10-minute break and regather when you hear the music for our communion service. Thank you. 